I shall not see and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. The 1960s were a decade riddled with milestones. On the last episode, we touched on just how quickly that decade seemed to go from the world of Wally Cleaver to the world of Eldridge Cleaver. It's true. In 1963, Leave it to Beaver was still on the air. President Kennedy was still very much alive. But just five years later, 1968, Things looked and sounded much different. Much different. Much different. Five years is still five years. It's always the same number of hours, minutes, and seconds, no matter how you slice it. So why did so much more seem to happen during those five years of the mid to late 60s than in any five-year period since? Is that just an illusion that our minds play on us? I mean, we're living in a time of rapid change ourselves right now, even if it doesn't feel that way. Socially, things are a lot more stable today than they were in the 60s. And aesthetically, too, people pretty much look the same and dress the same as they did 5, 10, and even 20 years ago. But you wouldn't say the same thing about our relationship to technology. Here's a clip from 1994 of morning news anchors Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric on the Today Show talking about the internet. It's about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen the mark, but never heard it said. And then it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. See? (laughs) There it is. Violence at NBC, GE, com. I mean. Well, Well, Allison should know. What what is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer network. Mm -hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big. How does one? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? It's a giant computer network made up made up of uh, started from. Oh, I thought you were going to tell us what this was. It's like a a computer computer billboard. It's not. It's 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 a computer billboard, but it's nationwide and it's it's several uh, universities and everything all joined together. Right. And others can access it. Right. And it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Now those are network news anchors, not little old ladies from Pasadena. So we may look and act a lot like the people from 1994 did, but technology has changed us and continues to change us a lot more than we might imagine. We're in an election year now. It's a very charged political atmosphere. Then again, When is it ever not? I was surprised to be reminded that Stephen Colbert's landmark speech to the White House Correspondents' Dinner was already 10 years ago. Fashions may not have changed much in 10 years, but 2006 was a much different time politically. Vice President Dick Cheney shot a man in the face, and a Republican presidential hopeful, a senator from Virginia named George Allen, was out on the campaign trail and grew irritated at the sight of a dark-complexioned young man videotaping him speaking at a rally. Maybe Alan felt it was intrusive, or maybe he just didn't like the way this guy looked. But for whatever reason, Alan looked at the man and called him Makaka, not once, but twice, a term that nobody seemed to pick up on right away, 
but which people found out soon enough was a term from European colonial times that meant monkey. Although riding the tide of conservative populism during the 2000s had been a winning strategy until that time, this event seemed to mark a turning point in the national tide. For the first time in 12 years, the Democrats took control of both houses of Congress from the Republicans in 2006. George Allen lost his Senate seat that fall and failed to get elected to any office afterwards. Nobody could know for sure who the winner of the 2008 presidential election would be back in the summer of 2006. But if you would have floated the name of Barack Hussein Obama as the next president, you probably would have had fewer skeptics if you said that Bigfoot brought down the Twin Towers on 9-11. So even when things aren't as socially turbulent as they were in the 60s, things do keep changing. Because here we are coming to the end of a relatively undramatic two-term presidency, which happens to belong to our first black president, our first non-white president, a man whose first, middle, or last name alone, let alone all three of them together, would have almost certainly precluded him from any serious contention for the presidency, right up until he became a contender. With the exception of Kennedy, presidents were always wasps. But interestingly enough, in our last election, 2012, there were no wasps on either ticket. That means for president or vice president. Even more interestingly, I don't recall that ever actually being mentioned during the campaign, even though up until very recently, that was the holy grail of presidential politics. And now, there are strong odds that we will soon transition to our first female president. So yeah, maybe we have sort of undergone a bit of a revolution since 2006 and Makaka Gate. But even bigger changes are taking place on the technology curve. That's where the real action's happening. One of the reasons for Barack Obama's success in the 2008 campaign was the fact that he had a YouTube presence, which no presidential candidate had ever had before. And there's a good reason for that. There was no such thing as YouTube the last time they had an election. When Obama ran, YouTube was an everyday part of life that seemed like it had been around forever. But the simple truth is, in the 2004 election, there was no such thing as YouTube. YouTube didn't exist until 2005. Now, what's notable from that age of television perspective that we talked about in the first podcast is that the Makaka video that ended George Allen's political career was not sent out to TV news stations. It was uploaded onto YouTube. So perhaps future historians will regard this as another nail in the coffin of the age of television. And finally, when George Allen was filmed making his Makaka remark, the guy filming it used a handheld video camera. There was no such thing as an iPhone in 2006. And now, 10 years later, we're getting ready for the unveiling of the iPhone 7. Artificial intelligence is not a matter of if, but when. And on a personal note, while driving in downtown Mountain View, California last week, I pulled up behind my first driverless car at a red light. So change is happening all around us, whether we notice it happening or not. And that is perhaps something to keep in the back of our minds as we buckle up and continue our look back at that most famously turbulent decade of all, the 1960s, in the TV room. This is the Dumont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown acid is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. 
This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like this. Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. In the last episode of The TV Room, we finished off by talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and some of the other concept albums that came out in 1967 and of the milestones that came along with them. We mentioned how 1967 was the year that society began to resemble the 60s as we know them in terms of looks, fashion, music, and movies. Politically, the sit-ins, the civil rights marches, and the Civil Rights Act itself had already happened in or before 1965. And 1968 would be the year of universal rebellion and confrontation that would take place everywhere from Paris to Prague to Mexico City to Chicago and campuses across the USA. And... There was the decision of sitting President Lyndon B. Johnson not to run for a second term as president because of Vietnam. Then there were the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and that was just the first six months of 1968. 1968 epitomized what the Chinese curse of having an interesting year looked like in real life with one unthinkable happening after another. 68 was a year when things got very real, very fast. We could do entire podcasts about 1968 alone, and the odds are good that we will. But for now, let's stick to a quick rundown of January through June, just to get an idea of how turbulent the year was, and why 1968 made people nostalgic for 1967. And then we'll go back and take a closer look at 1967. Nineteen sixty-eight started off with a bang, with a series of bangs, because nineteen sixty-eight started off with the Tet Offensive, which is one of those terms that people know, even if they don't know why or what it means. Even if they don't recognize a single place name or battle site from the Vietnam War, Tet Offensive is probably the one term that they would recognize. A textbook definition of the Tet Offensive would be something like a series of coordinated surprise attacks undertaken by the North Vietnamese against the South Vietnamese and their allies, beginning on January 30th, 31st, 1968, and lasting for several weeks. A follow-up paragraph might read, the Tet Offensive was the largest operation conducted by either side during the war up until that time. The North Vietnamese managed to overtake an unprecedented number of South Vietnamese positions and even launch an attack on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon before the South Vietnamese and their allies quickly regrouped and fought back hard. But that doesn't really explain the significance of the Tet Offensive in the American mind and why it was so important. Vietnam was America's first television war. So here on the home front, the Tet Offensive was experienced through the lens of the media. And as a result of Tet, television began devoting more and more time to the day-to-day -day events in Vietnam including something that happened the very next day, February 1st, and was captured on film. If Tet Offensive is the phrase most associated with the Vietnam War, then the image most associated with it 
might be the photo of the Vietnamese officer on a street in broad daylight on that first day of February, calmly leveling his revolver at the temple of a handcuffed prisoner in shorts and flip-flops, and pulling the trigger. And, of course, that still photo was accompanied by film footage of the whole thing, which was broadcast on the evening news that very night in America. This was shocking for a number of reasons. For starters, just to see violent death like that on TV was a horrifying spectacle, and still is. Lee Harvey Oswald taking a gut shot from Jack Ruby on live TV was the only thing remotely close at the time. Mostly, though, it is the image of this young man in flip-flops and cutoffs, with his hands bound behind his back, being led through the streets of Saigon and brought to a man in uniform, an officer, who calmly takes aim and puts a bullet into his brain with the nonchalance of somebody staple-gunning a flyer to a telephone pole, and then just leaves the body there crumpled up on the pavement. It's the casualness of the whole thing, that is the most unsettling of all. There's no room for context in this scenario. Television has no place for backstory. The photographer who took that picture and won a Pulitzer Prize for it likes to point out that the prisoner was captured at the scene of a freshly committed war crime and was said to have confessed. But the film doesn't show that part. The eye of the camera captures a different kind of truth. And about the South Vietnamese officer's uniform the executioner was wearing. Aren't the South Vietnamese supposed to be the good guys? Isn't that why we're over there helping them fight the enemy? Because they're the good guys? And speaking of American involvement... What about the two guys leading that doomed prisoner with his hands tied behind his back over to the South Vietnamese officer and standing just out of frame when the shooting takes place? Those were American soldiers. What was really going on here? These were questions that probably wouldn't have been asked in the Korean War or World War II. And the reason for that was television. If you were an otherwise apolitical teenager in January 68, who happened to be watching TV that day and happened to see that execution, you might start to wonder if you should be paying closer attention. And that was just one day's news cycle. There was much more footage of death and destruction from Vietnam to look at and the TV networks were increasingly willing to show it. In February, the body counts of American soldiers started to spike. 543 Americans were killed in action during the week of February 18th. That same week, in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive, Cronkite left the anchor desk and hopped on a plane to report on location from Vietnam. In Saigon, Cronkite and his producer had dinner with General Creighton Abrams, after whom the Abrams tank is named. Abrams was about to assume command from General William Westmoreland, who had commanded the forces in Vietnam from the beginning of American military involvement until then. Westmoreland had a gung-ho approach and pushed the search-and-destroy tactics that the U.S. had been favoring and increasingly employing until then. Under Westmoreland's command and Johnson's acquiescence, the U.S. began deploying ever more divisions into combat, and more and more boys began coming home in body bags. As Johnson had previously asked his commander of troops in Vietnam, if we send in more divisions... Won't they just send in more divisions? And where does it end? To keep from looking like we were getting bogged down in a war of attrition, the Pentagon pushed the idea of the body count and the kill ratio 
Each week, the Pentagon would publish, and the network news would broadcast, little pictographs representing the number of U.S. and Allied troops killed in battle that week versus the number of enemy killed. As long as the enemy number was demonstrably higher, then America could be shown to be winning the war. By late 1967, the number of American dead was already approaching 500 per week. And the media began showing actual footage of the combat, including the U.S. dropping napalm on what were being called communist sympathizers, but looked a lot like ordinary villagers from that perspective. GIs were filmed in cinematic color, setting fire to straw huts with their zippos, while little old ladies stood off to the side sobbing. Were these the enemy, represented by the little body count kill ratio symbols in the news reports? That question was now on the table, thanks to television. In February 68, a journalist quoted an unnamed U.S. Army major saying, it became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it, which seemed to perfectly sum up what was being seen in the footage on the news. On March 16th, the My Lai Massacre would take place, although it wouldn't become public knowledge until 1969. As a side note, Inspired by Cronkite's field reporting from Vietnam, CBS launched the news program 60 Minutes in the fall of 1968, a show that capitalized on the prestige of the anchorman and kicked off the trend of investigative, or tabloid, journalism that dominates our news cycle today. Meanwhile, back in Vietnam, as President Johnson had asked General Westmoreland, where does it end? With the North Vietnamese able to launch an operation as big, bold, and well-coordinated as the Tet Offensive in 1968, Westmoreland's search-and-destroy tactics were seen to have, in the end, failed. For it was now apparent that despite having killed such a high number of the enemy for such a sustained period of time, the enemy had only grown stronger. When Westmoreland's replacement, General Abrams, sat down for dinner with Cronkite and his producer, he was purported to have said, we cannot win this goddamn war, and we ought to find a dignified way out. After the meeting with General Abrams, Cronkite spent the next few days touring the country, talking to people in the field, and broadcasting dispatches for the nightly news back home. Upon his return, Cronkite concluded his report from Vietnam, as he called it, with a carefully crafted editorial that was read on his February 27th newscast, in which Cronkite artfully paraphrased General Abrams' comments that we cannot win this war and we ought to find a dignified way out. When President Johnson got wind of Walter Cronkite's report, he reportedly said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. This was no idle remark by Johnson. The 1968 presidential primary season was about to begin. Normally, you'd think that Johnson, running as the incumbent who had won in a landslide in 1964 against Barry Goldwater, would not have to worry about challenges at least not from within his own party. But opposition to the Vietnam War had spurred Democratic Senator Eugene McCarthy to declare his candidacy back in late 1967. McCarthy had been recruited by a group called the Anti-Vietnam War slash Dump Johnson Movement to run against LBJ. Supposedly, McCarthy was the group's third choice after Senators Robert F. Kennedy and George McGovern both declined. This might lead us to conclude that while opposition to the Vietnam War among Democrats was substantial, most high-profile Democrats didn't see it as a strong enough platform from which to openly challenge President Johnson. 
But that was before the Tet Offensive, before the increased media coverage, and before Uncle Walter's editorials about the war on the nightly news. The Democratic primary season kicked off on March 12th in New Hampshire, about two weeks after Cronkite broadcast his final report on Vietnam. And to everyone's surprise, McCarthy came close to beating Johnson, winning 42% of the vote compared to Johnson's 49. We should point out that only 14 states actually held primaries at that time. Convention delegates were appointed differently than today, and they had much more freedom to change their votes at the convention. Unlike today, the convention was where the nominee was actually decided upon in the proverbial smoke-filled room. The nominee was not determined by the vote tallies from the primaries, but by the tallies that took place at the convention which is a purely ceremonial function now. And the reason for that change stems directly from the 1968 Democratic Convention and the havoc that it wreaked on the party, which was all captured on camera and broadcast live on TV. And with that New Hampshire bombshell, suddenly Johnson, who was such a large, imposing man, physically as well as politically, looked vulnerable. Bobby Kennedy, who had declined to get in the race earlier, quickly changed his mind and declared his candidacy on March 16th, just three days after the results of New Hampshire were in. On the evening of March 31st, President Johnson went before the TV cameras to give a scheduled address to the nation, where he announced a temporary halt in the bombing of North Vietnamese targets and extended an invitation to the North Vietnamese to sit down with the Allies at the negotiating table. Perhaps eager to follow through on Cronkite and General Abrams' advice about making a dignified withdrawal. And then, with a statement that caught everybody off guard, not even Johnson's speechwriter knew about it. LBJ closed out the speech by announcing that he would not seek, nor would he accept, his party's nomination to be the candidate for the 1968 presidential election. Wheeling and dealing in smoked-filled rooms had always been LBJ's milieu. Primaries be damned. So for Johnson to quit the race based on that New Hampshire vote alone, plus the fact that he was polling poorly in the upcoming Wisconsin primary, LBJ's formidable political instincts must have been telling him that he was too weak for this fight and that it was time to get out for the sake of his own health, as well as for the good of the party and the country. Now, we happen to be in a presidential election year ourselves, and from our perspective, it might seem a little surprising that one single primary would cause Johnson to stand down, especially considering he actually won that primary, 49% to 42. To this day, nobody is entirely sure what made Johnson, who was such a political pit bull, throw in the towel at such an early juncture. As noted, Bobby Kennedy had jumped into the race within 72 hours of McCarthy's surprise showing in New Hampshire. LBJ hated and feared Kennedy. All Kennedys. Johnson came from humble beginnings in the Texas scrub and worked his way into the inner circle of local, then state, then federal politics through determination, savvy, and persuasion. The Kennedys were Ivy Leaguers with all the right connections and a very rich daddy. Their father bought them their elections. The Kennedys acted like, and were treated like, movie stars. But beneath the apple-cheeked imagery, 
The Kennedys were every bit the ruthless political pool players that Johnson was. Maybe even more so. After all, the Mafia was allegedly brought in to help JFK win the 1960 election over Nixon. LBJ was Kennedy's vice president on that winning ticket. But during the campaign and during the thousand days of the John F. Kennedy White House, it was clear that LBJ was not Kennedy's number two man. That man was Kennedy's younger brother, Bobby, who had his White House position handed to him on a silver platter, the very opposite of Johnson, who had to work his way into the Washington elite. The two men were known to hate each other even when they worked in the same White House together. So when Bobby Kennedy suddenly reversed course and decided to throw his name in the ring for 1968 after all, Johnson must have sensed doom. LBJ also lived with the belief that his health was not good. He sensed that he personally would not be able to withstand a season of rough campaigning and political infighting among the Democrats. Not to mention what it would do to the country, to the party, and to the war effort. Already the strains of protesters chanting, Hey, 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 LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? could be heard everywhere Johnson went, and even in the Rose Garden, which apparently broke LBJ's heart and maybe broke his will. So whether for selfish or selfless reasons, but probably selfless, LBJ announced that he would not seek, nor would he accept, his party's nomination for another term as president. Johnson's abdication left the field wide open for Bobby Kennedy. Eugene McCarthy, the original inspiration for the anti-war campaign, was no match for the Kennedy charm and the deep pockets and even deeper connections of the Kennedy machine. Lyndon Johnson's vice president, Hubert H. Humphrey, would announce his candidacy in April and run in LBJ's place, with LBJ's backing, as the establishment candidate. Lyndon Johnson had inherited the mantle of the presidency from the slain John F. Kennedy and went on to soundly defeat Republican nominee Barry Goldwater in the 1964 campaign. Before that, Johnson had been the leader of the Democratic Party in the Senate throughout the 1950s and was considered to be the most skilled and persuasive dealmaker, in short, the best politician, in Washington. Once elected outright to the presidency in 64 by a landslide, Johnson used his mandate and his considerable pull on Capitol Hill to pass a broad array of sweeping legislation in his first term. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the War on Poverty, the Great Society, and the Vietnam War. To this day, it remains a mystery how such a formidable political poker player, at the peak of his power, managed to lose it all on Vietnam. But that's exactly what happened. In any event, the bombshell of LBJ's March 31st announcement that he would not accept his party's nomination was overshadowed by an even more shocking event that would happen just four days later. Thanks in large part to President Johnson, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. This was a comprehensive piece of legislation that basically outlawed all forms of racial discrimination in public or government institutions, and said that race could no longer be used as criteria for housing or employment. In 1965, Johnson came out even more vociferously on behalf of the Voting Rights Act, going so far as addressing his fellow Americans in a nationwide address using the hallmark slogan of the civil rights marchers, We Shall Overcome. 
As with most things, making the declaration is the easy part. The hard part is the follow-through. Congress had declared racial discrimination to be illegal. But how do you go about enforcing something like that? It's easy enough to take down the whites-only signs hanging over drinking fountains and to force Southern universities to admit black students. But how do you go about addressing more vague notions like wage discrimination and biased hiring practices? In response to that challenge, in December of 1967, Martin Luther King, working on behalf of the Southern Christian Leadership Committee, undertook what was called the Poor People's Campaign. The immediate aftermath of the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Acts of 1964 and 65 had been, in part, riots breaking out in black neighborhoods of American cities throughout the country. In addition to this, Lyndon Johnson had declared a war on poverty back in 1964, marking what may have been the first time that the poor were viewed as a distinct constituency of people irrespective of race, creed, or color. With the major civil rights legislation now passed, but public opinion souring on some of LBJ's far-reaching reforms of 1964-65, which included the introduction of things like food stamps and welfare benefits, and with the LBJ administration itself increasingly focused on the war in Vietnam rather than the war on poverty at home, Martin Luther King embarked on the Poor People's Campaign by going around the nation and lending his support to various workers' movements, particularly those said to be fighting persistent, ongoing discrimination. And so it was that Martin Luther King found himself making multiple visits to Memphis to rally behind the city's striking sanitation workers who had walked off the job demanding better working conditions and higher pay. King spoke there on March 18th, and then again on March 28th, and he was scheduled to fly from Atlanta to Memphis to speak there again on April 3rd. King's plane that day was delayed out of Atlanta because of a message from an anonymous caller phoned into the airline. The caller said, Your airline brought Martin Luther King to Memphis, and when he comes again, a bomb will go off, and he will be assassinated. King did fly to Memphis, and he did give the speech on April 3rd, before a small crowd whose disappointing size was chalked up to the stormy weather that the area was experiencing. Like LBJ, King at this point was trying to maintain a semblance of control over a fracturing coalition. Fighting a war on something as nebulous as poverty was not quite as galvanizing as marching to overturn Jim Crow laws. White America was more wrapped up in Vietnam now, and had grown a little disillusioned with the increase in urban riots and the increasingly strident tones of black militancy. And in the black community, King's message of nonviolence was met with increasing competition from militant groups espousing a by any means necessary approach. The tension in the air that night in Memphis was palpable, as King gave what was regarded as a somewhat unexceptional speech. Until he got to the end, when he mentioned the threat to his life that delayed his flight earlier that evening. This is where King launched into the now legendary oratory known as his I Have Been to the Mountaintop speech. Less than 24 hours later, just after 6 p.m., April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was chatting with two of his aides, Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson, along with a local musician, on the balcony in front of their second-story room overlooking the courtyard of the Lorraine Motel. In a rooming house across the way, a man named James Earl Ray had rented a room earlier that day 
and was seen taking frequent trips to the bathroom, which had a small window that faced the courtyard of the Lorraine Motel. Just before 6 p.m., Ray took his rifle and locked himself in the bathroom. His fatal bullet struck Dr. King in the jaw, shattering the lower part of his face and destroying his spinal cord. That same night, Robert F. Kennedy was scheduled to deliver a speech in a low-income black neighborhood of Indianapolis. This was an era before instant communication. So while Kennedy already knew that King had been shot before boarding his plane and got word as soon as he landed in Indianapolis that King had in fact died, the crowd waiting there to see him had no idea. The Indianapolis police advised Kennedy against even going into the ghetto, let alone speaking there. And his wife Ethel agreed. Instead of giving the campaign speech he planned on giving, it fell upon Kennedy to break the news to the otherwise celebratory crowd that Martin Luther King had been shot and killed. He did so with some unscripted remarks about rising above anger and trying to heal and move forward as a nation. He referenced the pain of losing his own brother to an assassin and having to fight back the desire to seek revenge. It was the first time Bobby had ever spoken of JFK's murder publicly. It wasn't the most eloquent speech ever given, but it was from the heart, and it was effective. Riots broke out in no fewer than 110 cities across America that night as news of King's murder spread, and 39 people were killed. But Indianapolis, where Kennedy had spoken, remained calm. With the Democratic Party fractured after Johnson's withdrawal from the race, the three main candidates each focused on their core constituencies. McCarthy was favored by college-educated liberals. Kennedy concentrated on ethnic minorities, Catholics, and the poor, while Humphrey maintained the support of the party's traditional blue-collar base and was not even competing in the primaries. Instead, intending to rely on the party's power brokers and the backing of LBJ at the convention. McCarthy and Kennedy were essentially competing for the same votes, and the competition went down to the wire, with California being considered the most crucial primary to win for whichever candidate hoped to go to the convention with the mandate of the people. The California primary took place on June 4th, and Kennedy won. He gave a victory speech at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles late that night, concluding with the words, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Kennedy was running behind schedule, so at the last minute, his aides decided to have the candidate exit the building through the kitchen rather than go through the front way, where Kennedy, who liked talking to people, and was always faced with starstruck crowds who just wanted to touch him, would have lost even more time pressing the flesh and making small talk. At that time, presidents had secret service details, but candidates did not. Kennedy's security that evening consisted of a retired FBI agent and two athletes, Rosie Greer and Rafer Johnson. While being led out the back way through the kitchen, Kennedy was ambushed at point-blank range by Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian Christian from East Jerusalem, on what, uncoincidentally, happened to be the one-year anniversary of Israel's 1967 Six-Day War. Sirhan was an apparently unstable individual who had floated from religion to religion in the months leading up to the assassination. He fired four shots at the candidate, two of which struck him in the back and one that pierced his skull. 
As he was being subdued, Sirhan continued firing wildly, wounding several people before running out of bullets. Sirhan later said he did it to protest what he described as Kennedy's staunch support for Israel's military. As Kennedy lay on the floor of the hotel kitchen, cradled in the hands of 17-year-old busboy Juan Romero, the last person he shook hands with before Sirhan opened fire, Kennedy asked, is everybody okay? Romero answered him, yes, everybody's okay. Kennedy then turned his head to the side and said, everything's gonna be okay, and lost consciousness shortly after being lifted onto a stretcher and taken to the nearest hospital for surgery. Bobby Kennedy clung to life for 26 more hours before succumbing to his wounds. increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victims, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. I shall not see, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. One detail that we haven't mentioned yet from the 1968 timeline involves something that happened back in January in Washington, D.C., well before the onset of the Tet Offensive, that involved a White House luncheon and the First Lady. Lyndon Baines Johnson wasn't the only LBJ in the White House. There was also his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. In other circumstances, Lady Bird might have made more of a name for herself as a feminist icon. She was an ambitious, independent, intelligent young woman from small town Texas with a flair for journalism. When she met Lyndon Johnson, became his wife to love, honor, and obey, and helped him get his start in politics. As a young woman, Lady Bird came into a pretty good inheritance from her mother and she ended up buying one of the first TV stations in Texas in the early 50s, and parlaying that into a multi-million dollar corporation. Lady Bird was said to be the first first lady to become a millionaire in her own right. Considering that Lady Bird started out with inherited money, and as the wife of a powerful Texas congressman was able to get into business with other powerful Texas men, this might be an example of the rich getting richer more than Lady Bird being a brilliant visionary entrepreneur, but I digress. As First Lady, Mrs. LBJ was a relatively high-profile figure, every bit as ladylike and genteel as her husband, who liked to talk to his aides while sitting on the toilet with the door open, was crude and vulgar. Lady Bird Johnson created the modern template of the First Lady as somebody with her own press secretary and chief of staff who openly advocates for legislation and adopts causes of social goodwill that tend to be non-controversial. In Lady Bird's case, that program was the Highway Beautification Act, 
and before that, the Society for a More Beautiful National Capital. The common theme of these works was that we as a nation should plant more flowers along our roads, with the credo, where flowers bloom, so does hope. In many ways, with her concern for the pollution that was destroying the American quality of life, Lady Bird was an early forebear of the environmental movement that is said to have kicked off in 1970, partially as a result of the hippie movement and partially inspired by the first color photos of Earth taken from space on the recently completed lunar missions that showed just how small and fragile an ecosystem our blue planet really was and how that ecosystem transcended man-made nations and borders. This led to the first ever Earth Day, celebrated at the beginning of spring 1970, and of the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency by the Nixon administration in December of 1970, which in turn led to a whole series of campaigns and public service announcements like Woodsy Owls, Give a Hoot, Don't Pollute, and Iron Eyes Cody's Crying Indian Chief ad. Not to mention the Save the Whales campaign, the removal of lead from gasoline, and really all the facets of environmentalism that came after. It's somewhat surprising to think that as the 70s began, whales were still being hunted and processed along the coast of California, just 12 miles north of UC Berkeley, in fact. So during the entirety of the 1960s, while all the protesting and the free love and the tuning in and the turning on were taking place, gray whales were being harpooned just beyond the Golden Gate during their annual migration, with their carcasses being hauled to Point San Pablo, just across the bay from San Quentin, to be rendered into oil and pet food. Lady Bird's Highway Beautification Act would seem like a good fit with the general zeitgeist of 1967. Picturing yourself on a road with no litter and colorful flowers that grow so incredibly high fits right in with the Beatles' musical output of 1967 and with all the other themes of the Summer of Love, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But 1968 would be a different kind of year. And the first indication of that came at one of Lady Bird Johnson's White House luncheons on January 18th for what she called her Women Doers Group. That's D-O-E-R-S. The subject of the lunch meeting was urban crime and how to reduce it. At some point, President Johnson entered the room, and Eartha Kitt, who was famous for playing Catwoman on Batman at the time, and was invited to the luncheon at the recommendation of one of Lady Bird's good friends, wasted no time in confronting the president about the condition of the urban poor. LBJ said that was something for the ladies to discuss over lunch. When it was her turn to speak at the luncheon, Bertha Kitt confronted the first lady about the Vietnam War, telling her, you send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed. No wonder the kids rebel and take pot. And, Kit said, the children of America are not rebelling for no reason. They're rebelling against something. There are so many things burning the people of this country, particularly mothers. They feel they're going to raise sons, and I know what it's like, and you have children of your own, Mrs. Johnson. We raise children, and then we send them to war. Well, this was just not done at the White House, and it supposedly caused Lady Bird Johnson to burst into tears, which in turn infuriated her husband, the president. For her candor, Eartha Kitt, who was coming off the biggest year of her career in 1967, was essentially blackballed from the entertainment business and had to work in Europe for the next decade. But this outburst over Vietnam was a harbinger for what kind of year Lyndon Johnson could expect. Indeed, it would finish his political career in a matter of months. 
And, as it did at that luncheon, the war would continue to divide the country deeply for the next few years, and maybe even decades. The Democratic National Convention would go on as scheduled in Chicago that summer, without Martin Luther King, without Robert F. Kennedy, and without Lyndon B. Johnson, who did not attend. Despite not running in any primaries, Hubert Humphrey would get the nomination. And there, on the grounds of its own convention, the Democratic Party openly fought amongst itself over what its identity and orientation would be. A reporter named Dan Rather was roughed up on the convention floor by what some would describe as Chicago Mayor Richard Daley's goon squad. From the podium, Connecticut Senator Abraham Ribicoff accused Daley, who was in the audience, of using Gestapo tactics. To which Daley, who was not hooked up to a microphone, appeared to have responded by calling Senator Ribicoff a Jew bastard. By then, all of the nation's institutions seemed to be engaged in some form of internecine warfare over Vietnam, the boundaries of civil rights, and the length of men's hair. Meanwhile, just outside the convention hall, on the streets and public greens of Chicago, a whole range of protesters from peaceful to provocative demonstrated their dissatisfaction with what was taking place inside as tear gas filled the air and police waded through the crowd, clubbing people with batons. In that way, Chicago resembled a lot of American cities that summer. That was 1968. What started with Eartha Kitt angering President Johnson in the White House with her perceived impudence had turned into open rebellion six months later. Richard Nixon, who had, for all intents and purposes, been drummed out of politics in 1962, came roaring back as the candidate of law and order to lead the Republican Party which for all intents and purposes had been banished to the political wilderness in the election of 1964, back into the White House. And as you may already know, the social wars and political revolt of 1968 would not end in 1968. Nixon himself, coming off a 1972 re-election landslide equal to or greater than LBJ's 1964 blowout over Goldwater, would be forced out of the White House in a downfall far more serious and humiliating than Lyndon Johnson's. And the political culture war that started at that Democratic convention of 1968? Well, some people say that we're still in it, with social conservatives continuing to appeal to the silent majority by portraying Bill and Hillary Clinton as a couple of unrepentant, free-love, draft-dodging campus radicals. The 1968 generation, now grown up and middle-aged, but still opponents and haters of real America. On the next installment of The TV Room, we will take leave of 1968 and visit a groovier, trippier part of the 60s. Well, thank you for tuning in, turning on, and dropping by. The TV room is not only a dimension of sight and sound, but also of mind. TV room lies somewhere between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. 
You can get there by finding us at Sorif TV, where you'll get a website full of all original content, addressing the themes of today's show, and more. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Sorif TV. That's S as in Serling, O-R-E, F as in Franken, TV. If you like this episode, you might consider subscribing to the TV room and giving it some stars on iTunes. We come out with a new episode twice a month, and subscribing to the podcast is the easiest way to make sure you get that new episode as soon as it's published. Rating the TV room on iTunes and sharing it helps get the show out there to the others who might totally want to listen, but don't even know it's there yet. Next up on the TV room, be square, be there, and be sure to wear some flowers in your hair, because we're going to 1967.